right, what's up, church? How you guys doing this morning? Okay, good, good, good. Um, at the end of World War II, as the Nazis were getting ready to surrender, the Japanese, who we were also at war with, they dug in. And uh, as the Americans were trying to figure out how to win the war in the Pacific, they uh, started focusing on several areas, but one of the areas that they focused on was this island called Okinawa. And so the United States invaded this island. They got a small foothold of the island. And the commanders quickly realized that if they were going to take this island, that they needed to take the high ground um, in this island. And, and it was going to be extremely difficult to get their men up there. They had to climb up a 350-foot slope. And then on top of that was a 50-foot, basically, cliff that each guy would have to climb up on his own to get to the high ground. Then they would have to take it. But they tried it anyway, and they launched an attack, and um, the Americans ended up defeating the Japanese on that high ground and pushing them back, really. And, uh, and they held that ground for a few days until the Japanese or had a counterattack and started taking that ground back. And um, as during that battle that day, as the Japanese were counterattacking, um, the Americans lost or had either two-thirds of their men was either um, wounded or killed on top of that high ground. And so the commanders decided, hey, we need to retreat. And they, ret they ordered that all their men retreat down, back down this mountain to the base of it and wait there. And so all the men who were able to do so, who weren't injured, were able to get down. And all the men who were injured, if they were shot, they weren't able to climb down this rock face. And they were stuck up there, um, you know, basically fighting for their lives. And so on top of this rock face, as kind of the dust settled, was the Japanese who are gaining ground, and then you got injured Americans, okay, who are fighting for their life, and then you had one guy, who, uh, one American guy who was uninjured, and he was a, a lanky medic who happened to be a Christian named Desmond Doss. And Desmond Doss uh, didn't retreat, and uh, he was up there, um, and he was up there with, as the battle was raging on. And all the other men, all the men who were able to retreat, they were down at the base of the mountain. And all they could do was listen to the battle that was happening up above as their brothers were basically fighting for their life. And um, eventually, they, as they're looking up, trying to figure out what to do, they notice that a body is being lowered down from this cliff um, who, of an American soldier who was injured. And what they realize is that Desmond Doss is the guy who's lowering this body down. And then here comes another one, and then another one, and then another one. He's lowering it down by rope. And for the next five hours, Desmond Doss lowers what the government says is around 100 men um, during the next five hours that he saves their lives. These are injured men who wouldn't be able to make it down any other way. Um, a few weeks later, Desmond Dossie actually gets hit by a grenade, and then he gets shot in the arm, and he goes to a hospital ship, and then he gets, he gets to go home. And when he gets home, he's awarded, of course, the Medal of Honor. And somebody at home asks him one time, he says, hey, um, what were you thinking as you were dodging bullets and dodging grenades and dodging mortars trying to save all these guys? Like, what was going through your mind? And Desmond Doss said, hey, I wasn't really thinking about my life, you know, or dying or anything like that. He said, all I was doing was I kept praying to God, saying, God, let me get one more, just one more. And I feel like we all love stories like that, right? 
Like, to hear of someone who's actually a hero, that word, by the way, gets thrown around all over today. I mean, to be a hero in our society today, you have to type something political into Facebook and click enter, and you're, you're a hero, okay? You're so brave sitting behind your computer screen um, doing that. But, uh, but you know, we, we throw this word around, but this is actually a real hero. I mean, this is a guy who is not held back by fear, who is doing his job even when it was under, you know, extreme circumstances, even when his doing his job was super, super hard to do. And that's kind of the idea that we get from Paul as we wrap up this letter to the Colossians. Um, he kind of leaves this, the Colossian church, these people, with just one last thing. And his idea is, what he's trying to get us to understand, he's, he's reminding them and us that just like Desmond Doss, we too have a mission and we too have a job to do. And this job and this mission that we have that God has given us as Christians gives us more meaning and more purpose than we could ever understand. Like, just does more. Over here at Grace, over the last six weeks, uh, we've been going through Colossians, and Colossians is simply a letter um, that was written by this guy named Paul, who's, he writes it as he's sitting in prison one day, and uh, he's writing the short letter to a new small group of Christians in a very insignificant city that called Colossae that Paul had actually even never had been to. And today what we're going to do is we're going to wrap up this letter. We're going to see kind of how he ends it and kind of his last emphasis of, of, hey, as I write to you guys, do this. And he's going to remind us what we as Christians are supposed to be all about. He's going to remind us what we as Christians, what gives us meaning and what gives us purpose. He's going to remind us of our mission and of our of our work, and really what we're supposed to be living for in our life. And he's going to do that by trying to give us the kind of the big picture, like saying, hey, all right, I know we get stuck in our little narrow view of, hey, this is my life and what's going on with my little life. He's saying, no, 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 get broader, okay? Come out a little bit. Defocus, or if that's even a word, I don't know. Unfocus, oh, whatever. He's going to say, look at the big picture of everything that's going on, and we're going re- to be reminded about what we as Christians are supposed to do. Now, we talk about this all the time here at Grace. Uh, Jesus makes it super clear. It's actually his kind of Jesus' last things that he tells his first followers. He's saying, hey, what we are to do as Christians is we are to do whatever we possibly can to reach as many people as we possibly can for Jesus. Like, that's it. All right, as simple as that. That's what we as Christians are supposed to live our life doing. And Paul wants to talk about that as he wraps this thing up. So, Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. He starts off by saying, hey, I want you guys to devote yourselves to prayer. Oh, boy. Let's stop right there, okay? We're not going to make it very far without stopping on that. Um, Literally, what Paul writes in the original language, which is Greek, if anybody cares, uh, is he he says prayer. Devote yourselves to it. That's what he says. Now, we're devoted to a lot of things, right? I mean, there's a lot of things that we're devoted to. I'm devoted to the Ohio State Buckeyes, okay? I'm not going to deviate from that. It's just not going to happen. Um, I've always been a Buckeye fan. I will die a Buckeye fan, and so that's just how it is. Uh, some of you guys, you're devoted to the team up north, okay? And I, I don't understand it, but I respect it because over the last decade and a half, okay, there's a section right here. It's the last decade and a half. I mean, you guys have gone through a whole lot, and uh, I don't know how you've stuck with them, but you are devoted, okay? I will give you that. Same thing with you Browns fans. I don't know how you guys do it. Every year, you hear the same old stuff. It's, oh, this is going to be the year. We're finally going to break through. You guys don't have a quarterback. You don't have this. You don't have all the pieces, but for some reason, it's, like, going to happen. But then by week five, you've lost it. So, um, you know, you've, like, lost all the 
the urgency and excitement is usually gone. Some of you guys, you're devoted to a lot of dumber things, okay? Um, your Netflix series, okay? Some of you guys, you don't even like the Netflix series or the series that you're watching, but it's like you have to finish it just so you can, like, say that you've finished it. Like, well, I started it, so I got to do it. And you're, and you're devoted. You make sure you get that done. Um, we're devoted to our teams. We're devoted to our friends. We're, you, might be, you might be devoted to CrossFit or working out or eating right or doing your finances right or to your family. And those are all good things, right? Or, let me say, <laughs> some of those are all good things. Um, it's okay to be devoted to things, but here's our issues as Christians is we're just not devoted to the most important things, okay? Paul's saying, hey, guys, as he's wrapped this up, this thing up. He's like, understand me. Be devoted. You, you know how to be devoted. Be devoted to prayer. See, I think if you're a lot like me, I feel like we go through life, prayer is kind of like an afterthought. You know what I mean? We're just like, oh yeah, I forgot to pray for that. I probably should have. That probably would have been better. It's like an afterthought. And he's saying, no, no, no. You need to be devoted you know, to prayer. You need to be praying. That should be a part of your life, like part of your everyday life. And then he explains kind of what he means. He says, stay alert in it with thanksgiving. Okay, staying alert here, it's, it's like uh, you need to like know what you're praying about. You know what I mean? So like memorize prayers. Yeah, that's just kind of flowing out. The, so this isn't a memorized thing. All right, this isn't, even some of us, we pray for the same things like every day maybe. Maybe you're like super good Christian guy or girl. All right, and you're like, you know, I pray for the same thing every day. But it just, because you, you're so used to it, it just becomes habit for praying for those things. It's like you say, it's like the words just come out of your mouth or go through your mind as you're praying to God, and you're not even thinking about it. Has that ever happened to you guys? You know what I'm talking about? Where it's like, yeah, I pray for this person, this person, this person. But you just don't mean it. You're not alert in it. You're just kind of going through the motions of praying, but it's not actually, you'd actually, your heart's not into it. Paul's like, no, you got to understand, you need to be alert when you're praying with thanksgiving. That needs to be a part of it. And at the same time, he says, pray also for us. That God may open a door to us for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am in change. Remember this guy, Paul, he's in prison as he's writing this. He says, so that I may make it known as I should. See, here's Paul. He's saying, hey, don't forget why you're praying, because you're devoted to prayer, right? I mean, that's like, and you're alert in it. He says, don't forget to pray for us. Now, the dudes in prison, we would expect that. We're like, of course. By the way, if I go to prison, I'll probably be writing you guys, my church, saying, hey, guys, please pray for me. I would appreciate that. Um, Paul's saying the same thing, which we would expect. But here, Paul doesn't say, hey, would you pray that God may open a door so that, like, miraculously, so we can walk out? Or pray that God will open a door so we can escape. That's not what he asks for, right? I mean, what he asks for is bold. Like, I don't know about you, but uh, most of the time, I just pray for me. Like, most of my prayers, like, something that's going on in my life. Like, I go to God, and I'm like, hey, God, um, here I am. Uh, help me. Amen. And I'm done. And I feel good. And I'm like, okay, well, I prayed. It, we, most of the time, I feel like we pray for us. We pray for our circumstances. We pray for the things that's going on in our life. But here... Paul doesn't say, pray that the doors may open and we can get out of here because this ain't fun and the food's bad, right? He's not saying that. He says, oh, yeah, hey, guys, my circumstances stink. Like, I don't like being here. This isn't fun. But don't waste your prayer, prayer time on me, right? In fact, pray that God would open the door and we could tell people about Jesus. That's what he means by open the door. He's like, that's what I want you to pray for because that's what really matters. 
not my personal circumstance. I mean, let's be honest. Does anybody pray like that? Do we pray like that much? I mean, I don't. See, most of us, we're just focused on us. We just pray for me things, our things. And what I've realized is that when God is number one in your life, which Paul has already gone through, right? He's already talked about how God needs to be, Jesus needs to be before all things. We talked about that weeks ago at the beginning of the letter, all right? So he's already kind of established that. But when God is before all things in your life, what I've noticed is that your circumstances just become no longer your priority prayer requests. The mission is. And so we as Christians, we need to spend less time praying about us and more time praying for the people who in reality are on the road to hell. That's what the Bible says. I mean, and even just hearing that here today, like that should bother you. That should do something to you. And like if, if I stood up here on stage, I'm like, hey, just want to let you know, your best friend is going to hell, okay? Like that should bother you. Or your coworkers, they are on the road to hell. Or what about this? Your kids are on the road to hell for eternity. Like, I don't know about you, that should make you cringe on the inside. Like, that should be something that's just like, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to think about it. All right, I want to do something about it. That should bother you. And by the way, if that doesn't bother you, and if you just kind of shrug that off, and you're like, I don't know, man. Well, that's just between them and God. I'm just telling you. You don't love them enough. You love yourself too much. It's a big deal. And it's a big deal to God, and it should be a big deal to us, his people. All right, we should care. For me, um, in my own life, what I've realized is that when I'm, you know, I got like a list of people that I've been praying for for a long time that um, I'm pretty confident do not have a, a relationship with God. And... Um, what, I, what I've realized is that as I pray through this, so this isn't from the Bible, this is just my own experience, my own opinion, so take it or don't, I don't care. Um, but what I've realized is that when I'm praying for people, it does a couple things. Number one, it reminds me about them on a daily basis. I, I try to pray for them every day. I'm not perfect in, in that by any means, and I miss some days sometimes, but I try. But what it does when I pray for them, it, I don't know, it just makes me care more. Like it just does. Like it gives me more of a heart for that person. I don't know if it's because I'm kind of invested in that person with my time or what it is, but it just makes me care for it. And so that's one thing, but it also pushes me to do something about it. Like I'll be honest with you, and I know this doesn't sound very pastor-like, but sometimes I'm like going through my list and I'm like, dude, God, I've been praying for this person. I've been praying for this guy for like two years. Nothing's happened. And I'm like, how do I get, I'm, I'm kind of sick of praying for this person. How do I get this guy off my list? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know, there's just something about it where I'm like, I haven't, I've been praying for him, but I haven't really lifted a finger to do anything about it. And I'm like, I got, God, what do I have to do to get this thing done? Like, just let me know, and I'll text him right now or whatever. I'm, I'm tired of praying for this guy. Let's get this guy saved, all right? It's like, I get into, it's like I get into work mode or something. There's just something about it, and that's what it does. See, not only are we to pray for people who have no relationship with Jesus, which, um, you know, we all got people in our lives that don't, but we are to also be interacting with these people too. This is what he says. Next. He says, act wisely towards outsiders. Now, when he uses this word outsiders, that means there has to be some insiders. So what Paul is doing is he's taking the whole human race and he's like, hey, let's split this up into two groups. Okay? You got insiders 
You got outsiders. Insiders, these are people who have a relationship with God that, that are part of the church. And by the way, when I say the church, I don't mean they go to church. I don't mean they, I mean, they should go to church, but it's not everybody who goes to church. The church is simply, in the Bible, just people who have given their lives to Jesus, okay? The Bible says we're part of a family, we're part of a team, we're brothers and sisters when that happens. And so um, those people, he's like, those are the insiders, but then you also got the outsiders. These outsiders can be good people. They could be moral people. They could, maybe they go to church too. Maybe they read their Bibles too. Maybe they, they pray too. Because remember, you don't get to heaven by doing a bunch of good stuff. The Bible says that over and over and over again. But these people, he's saying, they actually don't have a relationship with God because those people haven't made that step at any time in their life to start that relationship with God. And he says those people are outsiders. And those are the people that we should be going after. So you got the church and you got which is the people in the church, right? Not this building or whatever. And you got the people, right, who are on the outside. You got people of the world. You got people who are in our family, and we got the people who we want that, to be in our family, but just aren't in our family yet. You get what I'm saying? Okay? We got these two people. He says, you got to watch how you act when you're around them. And then he says, you need to let your speech always be gracious. Right? Speech, by the way, requires talking. We get that? All right, words. Like that's part of speech. We all on the same page with this. Christians, I think we, we get this messed up. I've heard this all the time. There's this guy in church history called Francis of Assisi, and if you're if you're Catholic, then you could call him Saint Francis of Assisi, whatever you guys want. Um, but this is Francis of Assisi, and one time he wrote, he says, "Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words." Have you guys heard that before? All right, probably a, a handful of us. Um, I just want to say, that is total crap, okay? I'll say it, I'll say it. Um, I get what he's trying to say, and I, 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 I think we probably agree. I just don't like how he says it. Um, I get what he's trying to say. Yeah, our lifestyle matters, okay? If we're telling people about Jesus and our lifestyle stinks, okay, or our lifestyle says something completely different, why is anybody going to listen to us? Because we're a complete hypocrite, and, um, you know, it's just like, what? You know, our lifestyle should back it up. And as we, if we are Christians, like, you know, we should be getting better and better and better at how we live our life. And so, but what I've heard is a lot of Christians, um, what we end up doing is we kind of use that phrase. We're like, okay, yeah, well, I preach the gospel. I'm all about that. If necessary, I'll use words. And what we do is we, you know, we skate through life, living a moral life, which is good. I'm not saying that's bad. We should live a moral life. But if that's all you do, you're wasting it. If you don't use your words... You're wasting it. I'll tell you right now, you are not living on mission. I'll tell you right now, you do not feel the urgency of people going to hell. I'm telling you right now, you do not love enough. And I'm like that too. It's messed up. Like lifestyle is important, but words are necessary. Like they just are. Paul even says in Romans, he's just like, man, if no one, you know, who's gonna, how are they going to hear if no one tells them? All right, it takes words. You can't just show up and you know, go look at me, and they're like, oh, I'm giving them a, you know, it's just not how it works. you got to use words. So he says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Now, I really like how he says this because I think this is awesome. Seasoned with salt here, when I first read this, I'm like, what the heck does, does that mean? Um, but what he means by this is he's saying you need to be, like, clever and witty with your words. 
Okay, well, what's, what's that mean? He's saying when you're talking to people or when you're in conversation with people, you need to be actively thinking about, okay, how am I using this conversation or how am I using this relationship to influence them towards Jesus? That's what it is. How am I cleverly using this conversation or, I don't know, wittingly, I don't know, that's a word, all right, using this conversation to point these people towards Jesus? Some of you guys... Right? Man, you are so serious all the time. You need to, like, relax, okay? Or it's just like, dude, you know, calm down. Why are you mad at me when you're talking to me? But you're not mad. It's just how you always look, okay? It's not a good look for a Christian. Just saying. Um, but that's the, he's saying you need to be strategic in how you say it. That means don't go stand out in front of the courthouse holding a sign. And that's not, that's not being, you know, saying turn or burn, okay? Which, by the way, all right, we all seen those. It's not wrong. I'm saying it. what the sign says is what the Bible says. Okay, I'm all about that. But that's not being seasoned with salt. Okay, that's not using your relationships and using your conversations to influence people towards God. That's just making everybody mad, okay? <laughs> that's not, it's not doing anything. You're just, you're giving out the message, but you're not, you're not being strategic with it. You're not being clever with it. That's not what, you know, you're not doing it the right way. Right, you got to put some thought into how you tell someone about Jesus. You need to put some thought into your conversations with people, always remembering what our mission is, keeping our mission in mind. This is like this tension among Christians where it's like we love that God saved us and we want to generally do the right thing. And we want purpose and we want meaning in life. I think the whole world's looking for that. But it's like we're too scared to do it. It's interesting. It's like we have no problem sharing things that we like. You know, we, got, we go to a restaurant we like, we tell our friends, hey, you should check out this restaurant. Uh, we see a movie that we like, we should, hey, you should go check out this movie. Uh, you, some, of you, some of you ladies, you got like your products and stuff that you sell and that you're all like into, like this is non-toxic and, you know, skin, yeah, I don't know, sensitive, you know, stuff. I don't, I don't know. Uh, sometimes when my wife shows up, I'm like, where is that? I've never seen that before. And, uh, and it works and it cleans stuff and it does this and does that. You know, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, don't, yeah, okay, don't let me sputter out here. I know I'm kind of right, just don't know how to put it into words. And so, you know, some of you guys, you're like into your product, and you're like, man, this is the best thing ever, um, all natural, whatever. And, uh, and so what do you do? You tell people about it because you're super excited about it, and you believe it works, and you're all, you know, you're all, you're all about it. See, we are, we as Christians, we have the greatest information of human history because we know it because we've accepted it. And we don't share it. Like, we know how to share stuff we like. We know how to share good news, but we don't share the most important news. See, we walk past that person in the store, or we walk past that person at work, or we live with those people. You know, we even, some of these are our family members, and, we're just, and in our minds, we're just like, man, I don't know, it's, it's too awkward. What if they ask me a question I don't know how to answer? What do I do? I don't, I don't know. It's just, man, I feel weird between us for a little while. When we do that, we're only thinking about us. It's messed up. We're wimps. We're no hero. We're not being brave. That's something we need to change. And that's on me too. And I think God knew that going in because um, he knows everything. And luckily for us, he has given us a team. And this is what Paul ends with. In verse 7, he, he starts going through some of these people who are on, our, who are on the team. 
he says, hey, Tychicus, remember, he's ending his letter here. He says, our dearly loved brother, faithful minister, he says, and fellow servant. Not my servant, not your servant. He said, fellow servant. He's a servant just like the rest of us in the Lord and will tell you all the news about me. He says, I have sent him to you for this very purpose so that you may know how we are and so that he may encourage your hearts. And he is coming with Onesimus, a faithful and dearly loved brother who is one of you. They will tell you about everything here. Right? Tychicus is this guy who's delivering the letter, and he's coming with this other guy named Onesimus. Now, we talked a little bit about Onesimus last week. Onesimus was actually a runaway slave um, that, was, that was actually from uh, Colossae. His, his master was this guy named Philemon, who happened to be, ironically, a part of this church. And so, first thing, right off the bat, we just got to kind of lay the groundwork here. Um, slavery in the Roman Empire is completely different than how we think of slavery in our culture here today. When we think of slavery here today, we think of racial I- issues that our country has dealt with, has, you know, been working through in the past. And uh, something, you know, the trans-American slave trade, which was a horrible, terrible, super sinful thing. All right, so that's what we think of. But in Rome, the reality of it was Rome, more, there was more slaves in the Roman Empire than there were free people. All right? Way more. And so in Rome, um, there were slaves all over the place, and it wasn't by race by any means. And so there was white slaves, black slaves, there was Asian slaves. I mean, there were slaves, every, you know, again, almost more than you could say most people were slaves. Okay, that's a real statement. So um, that's what slavery was like in the Roman Empire. And here's this guy, Onesimus, who runs away from his master. He ends up running into Paul in Rome. This Onesimus guy ends up getting saved. And here's Paul. He says, hey, Onesimus, you want to do, like, the, the right thing that, that God wants you to do? Onesimus is like, yeah. He's like, I want you to, you should go back technically to your master. And he sends a letter to Philemon, his master. And that's where we get the book of Philemon in the New Testament. You should go read it. Super short. Take you, like, four minutes. But you should go do that today just so you can understand what I'm talking about. And so he, these two guys are actually carrying two letters, carrying this one letter, Philemon, and they're carrying this other letter to the whole Colossian church, and they're going from Paul to Colossae, and they will be given the Colossian church an update. He goes on. He says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, he also sends you greetings, as does this guy, Mark. Now, Aristarchus is one of these guys that whenever we see him in the New Testament, um, he's always in trouble with Paul, like every time. Uh, you remember that friend when you were growing up who you guys were like, you know, he's the person that you always got trouble with, or she, it could be, you know what I'm talking about? During my, at my wedding, my best man for his speech or toast or whatever that thing is when they talk, um, they, uh, he was, he, he said, he was like, you know what? I've only gotten in trouble with the law a few times. I'm a pretty good guy. Every time I was with you, Zach. You know, it's like that kind of guy, like friend, where you guys are friends to the end, and you're like, yeah, you just, you, it's just natural. You get in trouble sometimes. That's Aristarchus and Paul. I mean, every time Paul's in trouble, it's like Aristarchus is right there. They were together. When Paul's shipwrecked, Aristarchus is there. When Paul is going to prison or getting beaten, he's there. When there's a big riot because of Paul in town, he's there. And now Paul's in prison, and guess what? Of course, Aristarchus is there too. Now, the Bible never says anything or that this guy leads anything or anything like that. This is just a faithful dude, and he's part of the team. He also mentions Mark here. He says Barnabas' cousin, who he writes in parentheses, like, concerning whom you have received instructions that if he comes to you, you need to welcome him. Now, why does he say that? Why does he have to say that? Well, it's because Mark and Paul have a little history 
How many of you have realized that not all Christians get along? We all should get along, but we don't. Okay, we're all sinners and messed up, jacked up, horrible, terrible people. It's just how we are. Um, Paul and Mark were no exception to this. Many years before, uh, Paul, he is a terrible guy. I mean, he's going around, he's, he's resisting Christianity as much as he can. He's going around, he's dragging men and women out of their homes, throwing them in prison. He's approving of, of Christians getting slaughtered to death. Uh, he was there when the first martyr dies, and, uh, and he approves of it. And so Paul is like doing whatever he can to like dismantle this story about Jesus dying from the cross, dying on the cross and raising three days later and saving us. And so as he's on the road to, a next, to his next city that he's going to go arrest all these Christians, remember what happens? Uh, Jesus kind of appears to him. He blinds Paul first. And he's like, Paul, what are you doing? You can't be doing this. And he appears to him and Paul's like, okay, I believe, which I think every single one of us in this room would do. And so Paul becomes a Christian. Paul goes to Jerusalem, and he, of course, he goes to, like, the church and shows up. He's like, hey, guys, I'm a Christian now. And everybody knows who Paul is. And they're all just like, uh, yeah, doubt it, okay? We don't want anything to do with you. You're just trying to get inside so you can arrest all of us and have us killed, okay? And there was this one guy with part of the church. His name is Barnabas. He kind of takes the risk, and he kind of takes Paul um, under his wing and uh, Barnabas and Paul are like two top-notch Christian guys, and they are like the dream team together, okay? And so what they end up doing one day is they're like, hey, let's go around, and let's go around the Mediterranean Sea, and let's go stop in city after city after city, and let's tell as many people as we can about Jesus. Maybe we'll get like groups of people together. They can start their little churches and do life together, and it'll be awesome, and that's what we'll do. And so Barnabas says, okay, great idea, Paul. Let me grab my little cousin Mark. He'll come with us. And so Mark goes. Well, about halfway through this trip, Mark bails. We don't know why. We don't know what the deal was. But Mark's like, this is too hard for me. I'm not going to do it. It's like when things got tough, Mark got out of there. And uh, Barnabas and Paul, they end up coming, they, completing their trip. They move on, and they come back to Jerusalem. And they're telling all the, the church in Jerusalem, like, hey, you guys sent us out. This is awesome. Like, not only Jewish people are giving their lives to Jesus, but also all kinds of different people, like all different races. I mean, it's, it's sweet, all different people groups. And they're like, hey, we should go again. We're the dream team. Why not? Let's do this again. We could do this our entire lives. And so they start they get ready to go, and Barnabas was like, hey, all in. Let me grab my little cousin Mark. And Paul's like, whoa, 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 whoa. He ain't coming with us. I'm not, I'm not going to Mark's going. And Barnabas is like, Paul, like, we're Christians, man. I know you're a newer Christian, but we got to give this guy a second chance. Paul's like, no, nah, he'll desert us. We can't trust him. He can't be trusted. I'm not going if he's going. And so Mark, or Paul and Barnabas have such a big argument that, about this, such a big disagreement that they actually split. Barnabas takes Mark and goes one place. Uh, Paul takes this guy named Silas, and he goes somewhere else. And so who is Mark? Mark's the guy who broke up the dream team. Right? Mark's the guy who cannot be trusted. Right? Mark's the guy who bailed. Mark's the guy who's quit when things got tough. He was the one that ran, basically, he, he ran away. And everybody seems to know this. And so that's the reason why Paul goes out of his way. And he's like, hey, guys, by the way, remember Mark? He's actually with me. Can you believe it? Mark, of all people, he didn't run away this time. He's with me. And he's the one that I wrote to you guys before that if he comes to you, you guys are to welcome him, not shun him. And it just goes to remind us that our team here, all right, let me just, Real quick, if you go to Grace here, just look around real quick. It'll be awkward. Do it. I don't care. All right? Try not to look at people in their eyes. No winks or anything like that. Don't be weird about it. Okay. 
This, whether you like it or not, is our team. Okay, just this. This is the team that God has put together here in Tiffin, Ohio in 2022. This is who we got. By the way, three years ago, this team didn't exist. God put this team together. All right? And so this is who we are. We are a team. We are a family. We are together. And we are to work together to reach Tiffin and Seneca County. And guess what? Here's the deal. I know some of you guys may not understand this, I think, but our team's not perfect. Some of you guys are like, oh, I know that, you know. (laughs) We're not perfect. It wasn't back then. And it's not today. But here at Grace, this is who God has put together. Some of you guys have offended each other. Okay? There's people in here maybe who have offended you. There's people in here who you do not like. Get over it. Okay? They're part of your team that God put together. God put you on the same team. There's people in here that are weird. Really weird. Okay? It's okay. It's who God has put together. There's people in here who you find annoying. There's people in here who you do not naturally connect with because you guys are so different. But they're on the team. We need to remember that it doesn't matter. This is the team that God has put together. And we're to help reach people here in Tiffin and Seneca County individually, but also as a church and also as a family and also as a team. God uses us even though even the people who are weak, even the people who are weird, to reach others. Like Mark. Mark's a guy. I mean, Mark writes the book of Mark, who we read today. He's the guy who bailed, not perfect. And I think Paul realized this at the end of his life. Maybe he's too harsh on Mark because the last words that we have of Paul, he basically is writing Timothy and he's like, hey, Timothy, uh, come come to me before winter because he's actually getting ready to be executed by the Roman Empire. He's in prison again. And he says, and bring Mark with you because he's useful to me. So we got this Mark guy, not perfect. He's on the team. And so Aristarchus and Mark, they say hi, he says. In verse 11, he says, and so does Jesus, who is called Justice. Jesus, I feel bad for this guy because this guy becomes a Christian, and they're like, oh, Jesus, uh, that name's taken. And, uh, and so that's not going to work. There's only one Jesus, man. So we'll, let's rename you. We'll call you Justice. That's a good Christian name. All right, Justice, eh, justice is good. So he gets renamed to Justice. And uh, you know what else we know from the, you know what else the Bible tells us about Jesus' name Justice? Nothing. It's the only time he's mentioned. Right, he's a nobody. He doesn't do anything crazy that the, that the Bible writers are like, oh, we should put this in here. He's a nobody, but he's on the team and God's using him. Right, I was thinking about this this week. You know, somebody here today, this is just logical, um, kind of sad to think about, but you know, somebody here today, you are the least gifted person in our entire church. I mean, it just has to be true. Like, it's true, right? Somebody has to be that lowest rank, I guess. Um, maybe it's a tie. I don't know. That'll make you feel better. I hope I'm not in that group. Maybe there's a whole group of you guys. But um, you know that, I mean, think about it. Somebody here today, you are the least gifted person in our entire church. On the flip side, somebody here today, you are the most gifted person in our entire church. And that's good for you. We all hate you. And no, just kidding. We love you. But um, it doesn't matter whether you are the most gifted or talented person in our church or whether you are the least gifted and talented person in our church. I don't know who you are, but I got some ideas. If that's you, okay, you are a vital part of this team. Like you just are. You are needed. And God uses us. You know how I know this? Because God's used me. I'm nothing special. All right, just a few years ago, I was a 
punk kid who didn't know how to lead, who was afraid to talk to my friends about Jesus and hated public speaking, okay? That's who I, that's, that's who I was. And God, I, I've seen God use me <laughs> in my life. It's kind of funny because Paul in a, writes in another letter, he says, God uses foolish, he uses foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and he uses the weak things to shame the strong. It's almost like I picture it like God's like, eh, you know what, I want another church in Tiffin, and so I need some real fool to lead this thing. And he goes, and he's like, ah, Zach, you're fool enough, and he takes me, and he plops me here in Tiffin. You know, here's the deal. Like, if God can use me, I'm just telling you, like, I believe this with all my heart. If God can use me, he can more easily, much more easily use you. All right, if you're somebody or if you're a nobody, if you have many talents or if you have few talents, God wants to use you just like this God named Justice to help people find him. All we have to do is we have to obey. Starts with prayer, and we got to talk to people. And if Justice is a nobody, this next guy, Epaphras, we're almost done, is like ultra-Christian here. Epaphras, he says, who is one of you. This is the guy who actually started the church in Colossae. Okay, so he's the guy. And he says, he's a servant of Jesus Christ, and he sends you his greetings because he's with me too. He says, he is always wrestling for you in his prayers. This word wrestling, I mean, obviously it's an athletic term. that He's like, he's constantly fighting for you in his prayers. Like it's the word that we get in the, in the English language, the word agonize. He's agonized over you, meaning he really, 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 really means what he prays. When he's asking God or he's talking to God about you, I mean, he really means it. He pours his heart into it. That's how we are supposed to pray. That's, by the way, being alert in our prayer about people. He's a great example of what that means. He says, he's so that you can stand mature. I missed it, but it's okay. He said, yeah, so that you can stand mature and fully assured in everything that God wills. He says, for I testify about him that he works hard for you. He's not with you, but he is still working hard for you, and he's praying hard for you. For those in Laodicea and for those in Heropolis, just two nearby cities, that he probably also started the churches there too. He says, Luke, uh, next guy, the dearly loved physician, he says, is also here with me. Now, Luke is a doctor. Um, back then, we think of doctors like, hey, that's living life. Back then, doctor was kind of like a low-life type job. It wasn't high at all. And uh, Luke is with Paul to the end. I mean, Luke's the guy who's probably keeping Paul's beat-up body alive at the end of Paul's life. And Luke is the one who ends up documenting Jesus' life in the book of Luke. And he ends up documenting the, how the early church gets off the ground in the book of Acts. Close. Acts. Two-part two part series right there. Um, he, he documents that in the book of Acts. And so what we have is, it's interesting to me that God doesn't use a pastor to write these things. He uses a lowly doctor named Luke. He wasn't even a Jewish guy. He was Greek. All right, so you got Luke, and he's part of the team. You got this guy named Demas. He's also part of the team. We realize later on in the New Testament that Demas actually ends up deserting Paul. And so Demas is not any close. You know, he's not at all, you know, perfect either. Next we have, uh, he says, give my greetings to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea, again, nearby town, and to Nympha. She's a lady who has a church in her home. Okay, so she's part of the team. And after this letter has been read at your gathering, he says, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans, again, nearby town. And then on top of that, he's like, and I sent them a letter, and basically I want you guys just to swap letters and read each other's letters. Um, so also read the letter from Laodicea. He says, and tell um, Archippus, he says, pay attention to the ministry that you have received in the Lord so that you can accomplish that. I feel bad for this guy, Archippus, okay, because he, Paul totally calls him out, like by name, 
It's embarrassing. Like, I picture it, they, they get the letter from Paul, and they're like, oh, man, next Sunday we're going to read Paul's letter. This is about to be crazy. Everybody goes to Nympha's house or whoever's, you know, wherever they're meeting, all 50 of them. And they get to the house, and they're like, okay, here's the letter. Let's, let's read what Paul says to us. And uh, they start reading it, and, you know, at the end, they read all the theological stuff. But then at the end, it's like, oh, and this person says hi, and this person says hi. It's like a long Facebook post, and this person says hi. And, oh, yeah, don't forget, I wanted to say hi to this person and say hi to this person. And then he's like, in Archippus, you do what God told you to do, you know. Don't you feel bad for him? He's like standing in the back and just like, Everybody starts looking at him. He's like, okay. You know? He totally gets called out. And then Paul says, last verse, he says, and I, Paul, he says, I'm writing this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. See, here at the end, we see, like, the frailty of Paul. He's like, and remember me. Even the mighty Paul needed the team. See, when you come to Jesus, you don't get just Jesus. You get us and we get you. All right, you get a family and you get a team. And we as a team here at Tiffin Grace, we need to push past our fears and we need to tell people about Jesus. We need to tell people about what Jesus did for them 2,000 years ago as he died on that cross for everything that we've ever done wrong. And here we got a great example of the team that God put together for Paul. I mean, he used guys like Paul and Mark and Onesimus and Barnabas and Tychicus and Aristarchus and Justice and Epaphras and Luke and Demas and Nympha and Archippus to tell the world about Jesus 2,000 years ago. And because of them and because God used them, the church has continued to grow throughout the centuries. And guess what? Now it's our turn. Now it's on us. It was on them and now it's on us, and we are to be a people and a church and a team that's on mission 24-7. Because the reality that we don't like to think about is that people that we care about are about to die. We are about to die. We only live a few measly decades, and it's done. And as probably every person in here has realized, time goes quick. And then your mission's done. It's over. See, we as Christians, we need to be willing to go running into the chaos, knowing that the enemy will be firing at us at all directions. And we need to do this in prayer. And our attitude needs to be, God, please help me save one more, just one more. Help me accomplish my mission. Help me save as many people as I possibly can. And I don't know about you, but at the end, when I die and I show up in heaven or whatever, um, you know, I want to hear mission accomplished, right? Like, isn't that what we want to hear? Like, what I'm worried about is that a lot of our Christians, a lot of the Christians out there, you know, I, want, I just wonder if God will be like, hey, um, you gave your life to me and all, but you forgot the mission. <laughs> like, you wasted the rest of your life chasing after, you know, building your 401K and, you know, just doing all this stuff. It's like, you missed the mission. Like, you actually didn't start the mission. Like, who wants to hear that? And I've told you this many times, that my biggest fear in life is not to die by any means. My biggest fear in life is I'll get it to the end of my life, and I'll be thinking to myself, I've wasted it. I've wasted my life. Precious time that God gives me that he doesn't owe me. It's my biggest fear. And so we as a church here in Tiffin, all right, we have work to do. And the good news is, God's given us a team to do it. 
And so we need to pray. All right, we need to be alert when we pray. Okay, we need to be, we need to pour our heart into our prayers about the people around us who we want to influence and help them find hope and help them find peace that you can only get. I'm just saying, you can only get with Jesus. This, this is it. I've looked. And then we need to go out and talk to people. All right, lifestyle needs to back it up, sure. But we actually have to engage people where they're at. That's the job, that's the mission that God's given us as a team here at Grace to do. Let's pray. God, we... Um, Thank you for these words. And this is stuff that we got to be reminded about. I mean, we know it. I feel like a lot of us in here, we've been Christians for a long time, and we know this stuff. We just don't do it. We just don't care enough. We lack love. And God, we ask that you would help us get better with that. Give us doors. Open doors for us that we would reach the people who you have placed us on purpose in our life. Our workplaces, our schools, our teams, our family, our homes, store, you know, just all the places that we go to. God, we ask that you would help us to influence those people and be looking for ways that we can do that. Help us be clever. Season with salt. Lord, we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.